You're listening to Scalay Sisters, episode number 64. Welcome to Scalay Sisters, the podcast for the classical homeschooling mama who seeks to learn and grow while she's helping her children learn and grow. Scalay Sisters is a casual conversation about topics that matter to those of us in the trenches of classical homeschooling who yearn for something more than just checking boxes and getting it all done. I'm your host, Brandi Vensel. You can find me at Afterthoughts, where you'll find my thoughts on educational philosophy and homeschooling, as well as my Charlotte Mason study guides and workshops. You can hear more from me on my other podcast, Aftercast. My co-hosts today are Pam Barnhill, Misty Winkler, and Abby Wall. Pam is a speaker, podcaster, blogger at pambarnhill.com, and author of two fabulous books, Better Together and Plan Your Year. Misty is a second-generation homeschooler with five kids and too many projects. With her blog, podcast, and membership, she helps you organize your attitude so you can organize your life. Find her over at simplyconvivial.com. Abby is not only a friend of ours, she's also basically the queen of the Scully sisters' sistership. Abby is a country-living farmer-rancher, a loving wife and mom of five who homeschools and reads whatever she can. Wondering what you want for Christmas this year, but not so sure? Allow us to suggest an annual membership to Sistership Premier. We've got a great lineup for 2020, including more bonus audio, Shakespeare mentorship with Kelly Cumbie, fabulous spring training sessions, the annual summer t-shirts, and more. Head over to scalaysisters.com slash sistership to join. Today we present our annual Christmas episode. We are using Joseph Pieper's book In Tune with the World to discuss festivity, Christmas, and of course, funerals. That's right, you don't want to miss this one. And so, without further ado, let's get to it. Let's start off with our Scalay every day. And guys, I'm going to have you repeat your name when you start. I mean, not literally, you have to repeat it, but say your name over and start over. because we have had some people saying they're getting our voices confused. So I'll just have you, you know, I'm missed. I'm, I'm not Misty, but if I were Misty, I would say something <laughs> You're like, you're going to confuse I'm, people. I know. Okay. Now. I'll just stop. I'll just stop <laughs> while we're ahead. <laughs> but Misty, why don't you go first? Since I already okay. said your name. <laughs> Hi, I'm Misty Winkler. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and you're listening to Scalay Sisters. Oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> so my Scalay every day is a confession. Pam's not the only one. <laughs> okay. What'd you do? I I'm reading a bunch of stuff that's going to take me years, literally, to finish, and that's all I'm reading. And so I have nothing new, and I am not reading every single day, and this is own dumb fault. So I am really happy with what I am reading. It's just the same things I've been reading, slowly, slowly, slowly plugging away at them. So what are they? Like, what are you, what's in your So it's my morning piece. Okay. Um, la Pam Barnhill. Woohoo. <laughs> and I have my life goal of reading Matthew Henry. So I read like one third of a page of Matthew Henry, which I think I used last time. 
again yes. for a second time. So this <laughs> is number three. <laughs> it's going to keep me. showing up. <laughs> We're going to be like in our seventies doing a podcast and you're like, no, fifties. <laughs> the goal oh, is by right. 50. <laughs> and then Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. I'm actually right. doing a, a short summary sentence of each part as I go th- through it. So it, I like mm. read it one or two times and then write a, a sentence about it. So it's very slow going. But, you know, that's one book, as you know, speaking of teachability, previous episode, we have gone through and just read sections of that book for a podcast episode mm-hmm. here and there. And I just realized I want to have, I want to read the whole book and see what the whole argument is. Right. And not just dip in topically. So that's also going to take me years at this pace. And I am reading Calvin's Institutes with my teenage sons. And so I do that in the morning, just about two or three pages a day. That's going to take us two school years to read. Two school years. Okay. I was going to ask how long. I mean, I know they're not going to live at home forever. So turns out (laughs) (laughs) I'm laughing, but inside I'm crying. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Okay, I'm done whining. Uh, Pam, you want to go next? Sure, I'm Pam and I'll go next. So I am reading a book called The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. Um, And it's by a guy named Justin Early. And I came across this book because my book club was doing Liturgy of the Ordinary. Mm -hmm. And um, I had bought a copy of that years ago. And then lost it in Portland when I went to the Scully oh, Sisters retreat in Portland. I guess sad. I left it in the house there. Maybe somebody there needed it more than me. Maybe they did. And so I didn't finish it. And the, I've always said, I'm going to get another copy of this book and finish it and yada, yada. And never did. And so my book club decided to read it. So when I went to get a copy of the book, this is one of the things that popped up in the people also bought section. Oh, and it kind of caught my eye. And, you know, it's always kind of scary because it's like, I don't think the guy's a false prophet, but you're like, (laughs) you know, it's like, are you legit? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, But he has quoted James K.A. Smith. Um, I think I'm on. Oh, gosh, there's all kinds of pages turned down. I must not have had a pencil close to me when I was reading. (laughs) I think I'm on like the second chapter. So I picked it up and started reading it, but then I had to put it down to finish like this, the book we're talking about today and the Hobbit and uh, liturgy of the ordinary for book club. So now like I'm picked it up again. So I'm just uh, probably about 50 pages in and he's, uh, he's quoted James K.A. Smith. So he's, he's probably legit, but I'm liking it. But the idea it's like a rule, like St. Benedict's rule. It's like your own rule for getting rid of the distraction. I was going to kind of give you a brief summary if I could. Is he proposing a rule, like a universal rule for all of us, or is he helping you write your own rule? I think he's, well, he has the rule that he calls the common rule. Um, And so he's proposing that you look at this rule and see, you know, like, yes, he feels like this would be something that would be good for everybody. But he also talks about different ways that you can adjust it. Interesting. So um, it's four daily habits and then four weekly habits. And so just, I'm not going to give away like no spoilers, but I'm just going to give a couple. But it's things like uh, one of the daily habits is kneeling prayer at morning, midday, and bedtime. Another one is scripture before phone. 
One of the weekly habits is curate media to four hours. And he's talking all media, like social media, movies, oh, television. Wow. Um, four hours pod, all week? Podcast. Yes. I'm like, this Whoa. is like, no. And I haven't gotten to that <laughs> chapter. He's going to have to be really convicting to get all media to four hours a week. Um, fast from something. For 24 hours. That's another weekly habit. And there are others there. Are, he's got, like I said, eight total habits for daily and four weekly. And then he gives you like, he talks about starting with one habit and then trying everything for a week and looking at different ways. And it's full of charts. And I don't know, it's just my kind of book. I love a good chart. So <laughs> anyway, I'm in, I've enjoyed what I've read so far. I've been a little convicted by it and I'm going to keep going and, and see what else he has to throw at me. Cool. I had someone in real life recommend that book to me a, a couple months ago. Okay. So I'd be curious to hear what you think. Well, we're going to have Abby go next. Abby's on the show with us today and we, we let her on, even though she has an F in her MBTI. Yeah. So um, <laughs> she's bringing the feelings. Yeah. <laughs> we decided feelings and Christmas supposedly they go together. <laughs> Do you guys want to talk about that? <laughs> do you want to talk about your feelings? No. No. No? Oh, okay. I had yeah. to do that for my entire childhood. So I'm, <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> well, I, I'm married to an NTJ, so I sort of can speak your language and, and other things. So I'll try not to, uh, you know, overflow over here. <laughs> You'll be the translator uh, for, yeah. <laughs> for the feeling crowd. <laughs> Should be the referee. Yeah, there you go. yeah, yeah. really, Boy. really. <laughs> yeah, I I like harmony, so that should that should work. Nice. Well, right now I am teaching a Shakespeare class at right. my co-op, and so pretty much I am living and breathing Shakespeare. I'm in Act Four of King Lear, so feeling a lot of uh, sad and tragic things right now, um, <laughs> and we. <laughs> are watching a terrible production of <laughs> Romeo and Juliet. I mean, which is basically all productions <laughs> of yes. Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. <laughs> but the reason I got this one is because um, Alan Rickman plays Tybalt. Oh. And huh. so I thought, okay, maybe I can talk my kids into saying, look, Professor Snape. <laughs> 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 Oh, there is so much more to Alan Rickman than Professor oh, Snape. I know. No. And and he is and he is so wonderful. And that's I love him. Yeah. I mean Hans Gruber too, right? That's a Christmas uh, movie. That's true. Um the uh diehard movies is, is <laughs> that's his character. So, for those of you who do not have pop culture references, <laughs> thank you. We're not naming any names, but <laughs> Misty. <laughs> Or if I've offended people by watching that, I'm sorry. <laughs> so what Shakespeare will you do after Lear, Abby? Um, well, then we'll be, uh, we're having tryouts because our co-op puts on a huge production in March. So we will be memorizing lines. I have two children that will be in the play and possibly some of my other kids will be extras. So I'm supposed to get through 17 this term, and I think I'm right around 10. So I have a few more to listen, read, or watch. So I've done quite a few. I've done, you know, the comedies, and Richard II, I think, is my favorite history. 
And I did a globe version of that. So yeah, I've gotten just to really enjoy a lot of Shakespeare this fall. Nice. Yes. Can I be contentious? Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Why are you flying through Shakespeare? Yeah. um, And we don't normally in my house, but this is kind of the idea is that it's immersion, right? Because Shakespearean English is, you know, similar in in the sense of a foreign language, right? It takes a minute to kind of get it and understand it. The idea is that you read, watch, and listen to as much of the language as you can, and therefore it helps in understanding. But we do study one play in depth. So we've only been going, we've been going through King Lear and we're only in act four and we've been going through it, you know, scene by scene as a class. So we only do about one or two scenes a week, the whole week, and we kind of study and kind of really discuss that. Okay, so this is like one of my second language students like turning on English television and just keeping it on even though they don't know what it's talking about. Yeah, I mean, we're hoping that since they do speak English, that, you know, they It was not an exact analogy, but the idea. Okay. Yeah. okay, all right. Yes, but the idea is, you know, and, and you've probably noticed that when you're reading Shakespeare, like, Maybe the first couple scenes, you're like, now what are they saying? And then after you're going for a while, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I recognize yeah. it. Um, so that's the idea. And they can repeat plays as well. Like they can see, it doesn't have to be 17 different plays. It just has to be 17 different versions. Like you could watch, like we're watching two different types of Romeo and Juliet, right? Because we want to see how each director portrays it and things like that. So <laughs> maybe the first time you're seeing it and you're kind of just getting, you know, what's going on. And then the second time you're actually able to, you know, pick out more. So, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Just curious. Yeah. yeah. I didn't design the class, but I'm going with it. So makes sense. I feel like this is a good time to tell people that if they want to read Shakespeare with us, that's what we're doing in the spring and premiere. Kelly Cumbie is coming on and teaching Shakespeare. I don't think she's decided which play she's doing. But she's going to read through a play with us in the spring and premiere. So, oh, fun. Anyway, that'll be good. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I, I may think... be over Shakespeare and maybe. <laughs> <laughs> we'll tell but her. I'm Abby's sure she'll here. do a lovely job. <laughs> we're, we were going to have you teach it, Abby. Just kidding. Yeah, no. no. <laughs> uh, well, I guess I will go. So, I'm Brandy, and mine, to my Scalay every day today is Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis which was amazing, truly amazing. <laughs> so I um, I didn't think that I was familiar with the story of Cupid and Psyche, and this is a retelling. So the first thing I did before I read it was looked it up, found a resource. I was reading it with my oldest. So I found a resource that both of us could just quickly read through the basic outline of the story of Cupid and Psyche. He remembered it. Um, I remembered why I had trouble reading John Milton in high school because <laughs> I didn't, didn't have a good enough education in mythology to know what he was talking about. But what I realized was I have this favorite fairy tale and I don't ever remember the name of it, but basically it's based on the story of Cupid and Psyche. So I knew the story without realizing, because in the story, it's more like a princess and just this guy that's been cursed and he's a prince. He's not a god it's slightly different, but it's basically the same story. So it was interesting that I already kind of knew the story. That story is going on in the background. I think it's helpful to know it because I think you could kind of miss it. 
because it's assumed that you know it <laughs> because you're actually seeing the life of her sister oral that's going on while psyche is just kind of like missing so it was so good. I already wrote a blog post on it because it it was like one of my therapy blog posts that I do um, <laughs> because I'm having trouble with the whole like kids leaving the nest thing. So um, speaking of feelings, Abby. You need to talk about feelings. <laughs> I'll box you later. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, anyway, it was, it was really super good. And what I appreciated about Lewis was that he managed to bring you in to the life of the main character in such a way that you thought you got why she did what she did and then realized how deeply sinful she was. And it was like a revelation to her and you at the same time, or at least it was to me, mm -hmm. possibly I was doing a low IQ read at the time. I don't know, but I thought he did such a fabulous job of making you feel not just the depths of sin, but the depths of blindness to sin that we can all have. Yeah. It's a totally different story at the end than you yes. were expecting. Yes. And it took me three times before I was like, wait, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> no, really, it really was kind of, I mean, it was one of those things where you're doing the double take being like, how, how did we get to this point? <laughs> I thought, I don't want to spoil it for anyone. So that's all I'm going to say. I feel like that's general enough that it's not going to ruin it for anyone, but wow, what a fabulous read. And I'm so glad though, that I am, um, that I waited to read it until he was the right age to read. And we read it together, you know, for the first time. Cause it was just, it was really fun to have someone to talk with about it also. So anyway, all right. I think it's time to transition to our topical discussion today. We are discussing festivity based upon a book that all four of us read. It's called in tune with the world, a theory of festivity by Joseph Pieper. And we all read it. It's Misty's fault. Yep. Yay. Because you brought it to the retreat, right? Yeah, it was my school every day for that yes. episode we recorded there. And then Ravi mentioned it in our last episode. That's right. And we even touched on a few preliminaries yeah. in that episode. So it worked out nicely. I'm so glad you recommended this book, Misty, because it really it, you're right. It is one of the best books on the, or best chapters on the Sabbath I've ever read. But also it just, wow, <laughs> it's just really good. It gives you a lot to think about. So. I actually typed up Pam's accidental thesis statement that she gave us on Voxer. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. I love it when I do something and don't even realize I did something good. <laughs> it was really good. <laughs> so I typed it up. I was going to read it. These were your thoughts on the book. So you said that festivity is more than activities or Disneyland fun. It requires a deeper sense of purpose and meaning. And without the deeper purpose and meaning, it doesn't matter how much Disneyland type fun or activities you have because they are meaningless. They literally have no meaning. And so then uh, you said, you know, festivity is absent without purpose. It's just empty fun. And what I thought was interesting was then you started kind of speculating that we sometimes in an attempt to acquire meaning or get meaning fill with meaning, I guess is a better way of putting it, that we are actually substituting activities like that, that frenetic search for more activities, let's say at Christmas time or whatever is mm -hmm. actually us are part of our search for meaning, I think was kind of how you put it, which I thought was really fascinating. And so my first question to, I thought I'd throw out there for you guys is, you know, if that's what we're doing, well, then maybe we should back up and talk about first, what actually gives festivity meaning? Where does the meaning come from? So we're saying you have to have a meaning for the activities to have meaning, 
where do we get that? Are we talking specifically about Christmas? Well, I mean, this is the Christmas episode, but I think we can be more general than that because he's more general than that. I'm thinking more principles here. Like what's the principle for making sure that our festivities, but especially Christmas, um, since this is the Christmas episode, <laughs> have meaning. How do we make sure that we're not just doing activity for activity's sake? I thought it was interesting. He had the statement on page 39 that said that festivity cannot be organized, arranged, and induced. Yeah. So that's something it can't. It's an absence of calculation, which I think sometimes we go into our planning or our doing of festivity with a calculation. Like I'm maybe trying to manipulate how other people feel. We will have the perfect Christmas, darn it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What we're all going to get out of this. You're going to have fun. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. He says something similar on 40. I had, I didn't underline that one, Misty, but I underlined a different one where he says no amount of effort, no matter how desperate can force festivity to yield up its essence. Mm. All we can do is prepare ourselves to receive the hoped for gift. Right. So it's not something that can be forced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I did that a few times. (laughs) Well, and he says in a different, I don't have a page number for this one, but arrangement alone does not make a festival. So it's a kind of experience that we have that's almost not 100% voluntary. Like it happens, it's a gift and we can make the conditions for it both in the atmosphere, but also there's a big part of our hearts within ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It's like the Grinch. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is really when Dr. Seuss was a very wise man. I was just thinking about how he just had the contrast between the affirmation and the negation. You know, I think in our modern vernacular, a lot of people would say the affirmation is just the, you know, mindfulness or being present, right? And I think that what the festivity is supposed to be is, yes, that, but also kind of that transcendent, right? It isn't something that we can actually plan for. I don't know. I I was trying to think of, yeah, when we plan things, you know, for our family, inevitably someone is just disgusted by the plans. Um, (laughs) You know, put all this time and effort and energy into it. And then, you know, someone has just a terrible attitude and yeah, like that we were going to enjoy this as a family and you are just, you know, stinking it up in here. And I think that, you know, when the idea of festivity, as much as I probably, I don't do this as well is the spontaneity of it too, right? Like you said, it can't Mm. be ordered or organized. I think it is important to plan. I love to plan. Um, but I do have to remember there are certain people in my family who just really love spontaneity. And I think Mm. that there's something to be said for that. It's not just the absence of something either. Um, you know, that negation, he just like, it's not just the absence of work. That was a big part of it too. And then this is just different. It, it actually has something, a higher, a higher meaning and higher purpose. Well, I think that's the thing. And until we realize that festival has very little to do with us and everything to do with something else, then we're always going to miss the point. 
and it's never going to be good enough. It's not about how you feel at Christmas. It's not about how you feel when you sit in the pew on Sunday morning because he's talking about festival being part of, you know, Sabbath being a part of festival and Sunday, you know, being a part of that. It's not about you at all. Hmm. You know, it's about something outside of you. And as Christians, we know this is God. And so, Mm -hmm. and until we realize that it's not about how we feel, it's not about us, it's not about how exciting it is to us, that's not the point. It's all about him, then it's all going to be empty and meaningless. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So he said in a few places, and I think it's part of his premise of the definition of festivity is an affirmation of the world as it is, or the affirmation of existence. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it's rejoicing or it's experiencing joy in life and in something that's both here and now, and as well as transcendent, that when we're in touch with that, we experience festivity. And he goes through several places really saying that it really is the Christian who has the ability to have true festivity. And we did see it in ancient pagan cultures, but in in modern secular or atheistic paradigms, there really cannot be festivity because there has to be meaning that's outside of this world. And he talks about um, the non-festivity of those that are too present, which I thought was funny or interesting because, you know, you see that a lot these days online of uh, being told to be present, which is someone who lives, lives in her head, sometimes find obnoxious, but (laughs) look, see here, Peeper says (laughs) that it's true. We do need to be aware of the present moment. But if we are so much in the present moment that we forget that there is transcendence and future glory that we're working toward, that the glory isn't here and now, but we are going there, uh, it's in our future, then we can't have festivity. If all that exists is the here and now, then we can't have festivity. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and the here and now emptied of any future hope, it really isn't worth celebrating. (laughs) Right. I mean, a lot of the time I shouldn't say that because I actually experience a number of good days, but I mean, one of the reasons why a good day in itself can be experienced is because some of the bad things that happen are pretty easy to just kind of shake off as like, well, this life isn't perfect. Let me lower my expectations right now. (laughs) Right. What always helps me is knowing that perfect justice comes later. Perfect, you know, glory and goodness, all all of that is resolved later. So I don't have to try to unwind all of that right now. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily help me accept really bad things that happen. That takes more working through, but just the average bumps in the road that you have in life. It's pretty easy to say, you know, well, it's not perfect right now anyway. But if I only live in this day, then the fact that it's not perfect right now is like a serious problem right? (laughs) Because I'm not looking forward to future perfection. Right. And he says several times that festivity, part of the attitude of festivity is an expectant feeling. Mm. So there is this looking forward uh, in hope and joy. Yeah. 
know, I did find, he did mention Christmas specifically on, only a few times because his main focus was um, Easter. 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 Yeah. Easter. And no, but I, and well, I was going to say Sabbath, but it really was the Lord's day. He had that yes. extensive, sorry, I got paralyzed in my brain because he had that extensive discussion about the relationship between Sabbath and the Lord's day and or Sabbath and Sunday, I guess was more how you put it. So anyway, um, but I did find his one big thing on Christmas I thought was interesting and helpful. Um, he says, when we talk about meaning, he says, um, this is page 24. If the incarnation of God is no longer understood as an event that directly concerns the present lives of men, it becomes impossible, even absurd to celebrate Christmas festively. So I thought, well, that's, I mean, just as without the resurrection, Easter's silliness, without the incarnation, Christmas is meaningless. Right. And not just the fact of the incarnation, but us seeing it as directly applicable to our lives today, having an impact in our lives today. Because he goes back to that theme in talking about like festivals that are related to history, like a nation's history. He says they're only actually festive if they are seen as still having effect in society at large that day. They're not merely memorial. Right. So we can't force festivity, he says, but he said we can prepare for it. I wonder if that's where the planning comes in. So we think by planning, we're like orchestrating the festivity, or at least I tend to think that. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if the planning is actually, we're actually just making room for something to happen. Mm -hmm. I I think of it kind of like akin, this is going to sound silly, but like to a narration, I can assign the reading, have the child read and narrate. I can't control ultimately whether they internalize it, whether they get anything super meaningful out of it, whatever. But by having the habit of narration, I feel like I'm making room for them to have a moment. They may or may not have it, but we carved out that time. You know what I mean? Like I insulated this time and it's protected from other things while that happened. I wonder if our plans have more to do with that kind of a thing where we're actually just making the space. Well, yeah, I think our plans are Advent. Yeah. You know, that's what Advent's about is preparing your heart for the incarnation, preparing yourself to be able to receive this festival. And that's why when we skip over Advent and we don't do it, then we're not prepared for the festival. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody wants to do Advent. They just want to jump straight to Christmas there are so many people on my Facebook feed this week who are putting up their Christmas decorations. I noticed that. It, it's a, it's a, like a pandemic or something this year, and I'm not exaggerating. A pandemic. <laughs> and, and then they're, they're defiantly doing it. Like, I dare you to say anything to me for putting up my Christmas decorations on Veterans Day. I'll do it if I want to. And I I think that it's part of that seeking. It doesn't have the meaning that we want it to have. So we're going to just make it bigger and bigger and bigger to try to force it to. But we're still left empty. Yeah. Well, I wondered too, though, I have been wondering if there's some sort of significance in the desire to skip Thanksgiving. I mean, I'm sure some of that's commercially driven, like Thanksgiving other, if you're not a grocer, it's not particularly profitable because there's no gifts being exchanged. So I think the stores skipped Thanksgiving for that reason. But I just don't know. I guess I think 
they're not just skipping Advent. They're also skipping Thanksgiving. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're, you're it's skipping the conspiracy the theorist in you, isn't it? it probably. <laughs> is. Yeah, probably is. Well, I don't know. Thanksgiving is a little bit questionable on the politically correctness more and more. Every <laughs> Speaking of conspiracy theories, that sounds like one. I, know, I mean, really, because there was this part of me that's like, have we just so discouraged people against wearing your little pilgrim outfit and stuff that, and people are just afraid of it. You know, the self-loathing has become that we just skipped Christmas because that's safe. It's possible. Well, Christmas is safe if it's about Santa and elves right. yeah, yeah. and presents. But I mm-hmm. mean, that's true. talk about incarnation and you get people that get real uncomfortable real quick. That's true. I don't know. Um, in chapter three, he talks about two, about joy. But the reason for joy, although it may be encountered in a thousand concrete forms, is always the same, possessing or receiving what one loves, whether Mm -hmm. actually in the present, hoped for in the future, or remembered in the past. And he goes on to say that joy is an expression of love. And, you know, I think that that's what people are trying to do, right? When they're putting all these decorations up, right? And doing this, right? They're trying to possess something, but they're also trying to force it and also force other people (laughs) into it, right? I mean, (laughs) Christmas songs, Christmas music. And it's trying to, I guess I would say it was trying to force momentary happiness rather than that deep abiding joy, which I think there is difference. So Hmm. then he finishes up by saying, one who loves nothing and nobody cannot possibly rejoice no matter how desperately he craves joy. Joy is the response of a lover receiving what he loved. Hmm. As much as we do these things, when we make time and effort and we do plan good things, it isn't the things that make it, you know, the love. It's that somebody loves us enough to do those things. Yeah. I think that, but we've, you know, can, we've lost that in some ways by saying, no, 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 we just need to do more decorations, more happiness and, and more, 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 right. Morticians. Yeah. Okay. I will say I bought more decorations yesterday. (laughs) I will justify it using paper, which by the way, though, I, I, I don't have very many. And part of the reason for that has just been storage space. Like you have to be able to put it away. And I, haven't had that. And I, I actually don't want to be the person that still has the Christmas decorations up in March. But when he talked, so on page 19, he talks about festival as having this existential richness. And Mm -hmm. so this is where he says the absence of calculation, which Misty brought up earlier, but he says lavishness is one of its elements. And it, it actually, it struck me during Halloween. And this isn't meant to criticize the celebration of Halloween because we talked about that with Ravi and it was an interesting discussion, but in our neighborhood, there are non-Christians who celebrate Halloween and they do this by putting up like the most grotesque evil displays you can possibly imagine, you know, and I, I'm driving through the neighborhood and I was thinking, it's actually really sad that then, you know, I know Christians on our street. And I mean, not that we have to outdo the Halloween people on Christmas, but there was this sense to me of why am I, why are they putting forth all this effort for something truly ugly? Mm-hmm. And I'm putting forth so little effort in comparison and I'm being, you know, the opposite of lavish with my one string of lights <laughs> 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 for Christmas. I just felt the contrast between, you know, me as a believer and them as an unbeliever. Anyway, 
And so, and then I read about the lavishness and I, so not that I went, I mean, there's nothing lavish about my life really at all other than the book, <laughs> other than the book collection, but, um, but I did actually buy things at Costco for the front of my house for the neighborhood, just because people said we should be lavish and I felt convicted. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't think there's nothing wrong with decorating for the holidays. No. That's not what I'm saying at all. And, oh, and I, I decorate yeah. for the ho- holidays, you know, it's but the decorating four months before the holiday. <laughs> it, yeah. It's the, it's the pushing it earlier and earlier and uh-huh. me just wondering if that's a, an indicator that the emptiness of it means we've got to make it bigger to yeah. make it meaningful, you know, yeah, for sure. And I, I do think there is an issue with, with skipping Advent. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to remember how old my oldest was when we were first introduced to the idea of Advent. Cause that was not something that I was raised with at all. Had never even really heard of it as you know, growing up. Yeah. Me either. I recall that that made it possible for me to not celebrate Christmas. So there was something to, I wanted something to do between Thanksgiving and Christmas. It was like instinctive that I wanted that. And so adding in Advent, not only filled that gap, but actually we literally used it to prepare for Christmas and it did actually help. For example, when they were little, I made sure that I was teaching them, you know, certain Christmas songs so that we could sing them during the Christmas season. You know, so like we were actually practicing during circle time, learning these songs or these Christmas poems or whatever. And then when the Christmas day came, we knew them and we, we didn't have to learn them. Cause I remember as a child, it would be like, Christmas is here. Don't you know the music? And it's like, when you're really little, no, I don't remember from last year. Last year's a long time ago when you're little. Anyway, the actual preparation part, it did exactly what you're talking about. It helped me have some, a way to prepare for Christmas and it took the pressure off of Christmas or I don't know, help me not explode per- Christmas, I guess. Yeah. You know, and Peeper says there too, that festivity includes time and wealth removed from profitable use. Yeah. So that includes, yeah, the decorations, the food, the time spent. That's part of what, what festivity is. Yeah. Well, I do wonder if we plan too many activities, we can crowd out the space for just that sort of, I don't, I don't want to say surreal, but he talks about transcendent experiences or whatever. I, you know, I think for example, giving kids the space to play with their toys instead of running them off to the next thing and the next thing. And sometimes that's unavoidable because if you have a large family, then there's just always the next thing. But I wonder about, you know, like, cause when you talk about things like food and it's like, you're setting the tone, you're giving the atmosphere. And then we can allow space, like free time for, I guess, the spontaneity that Abby was talking about. I think it's in, I don't know where he wrote it, but I wrote this note, but it must be recognized that celebration isn't what we do, but what we cannot do. You know, in all this doing and going places and, you know, partying it up, there's just some things that we need time to think about, you know, what happened, right? The incarnation that baby, (laughs) you know, in that barn, Mm -hmm. in the dirt and gross and, and those things. And, and then remember what we cannot do, right? We cannot save ourselves no matter how much tinsel we use. Mm -hmm. So often the affirmation is yes, we should celebrate and we should be festive and all of these wonderful things. And yet remembering that we cannot do all that we would like to sometimes. Okay. So 
we've talked a little bit about activity. I would love to see us jump to chapter six a little bit and talk about how the muses do have a part to play. I think it could start to tempt us to swing to then we'll do like, we'll prepare the food and stuff, but then we'll plan nothing or whatever. Um, and I found all of his stuff about the arts, having a contribution, fine arts, keeping the festival alive and having this special place. I just found it all very fascinating. And so I know a lot of churches do Christmas programs. They'll have choirs, Pam, (laughs) (laughs) all sorts of neat things. But I'm wondering, do the fine arts play any part in your home? Like, you know, there's like the Christmas, there's the church part of Christmas, but then there's the home part of Christmas. Does that play any part for you guys? And would you, or would you like it to, if it doesn't, I'm curious. Well, I think the beautiful music, the sacred music, uh, Christmas carols, mm-hmm. things like that. I mean, that's, to, I think in my house, that's the biggest, that's the biggest thing right there. Mm-hmm. Now, do you guys listen to it or do you make the music yourselves? Like, do you get around on the piano or something and sing together? Oh, well, Olivia can play the piano um, and she plays Christmas music on the piano. That's fun. We haven't really done Christmas caroling, like art, like singing Christmas carols ourselves in a long time. She's probably mm-hmm. getting to the age now where she could. Uh, I mean, we sing along with the I, I was going to say the radio, but I'm showing my age, <laughs> the <laughs> musical <that>? streaming device, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of nice because you don't have to listen to commercials or Brenda Lee like 50 million times. Mm-hmm. So we do sing along. So both. That's fun. Does anybody dance for Chris? I mean, like specifically like for Christmas. I was in the Nutcracker once. Does that count? Oh, that's funny. <laughs> it does count, actually. It wasn't what I was thinking, but I was like, I, actually, what I was thinking was in the book that you guys love so much by Charles Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> there's the character Fezziwig, right? Who makes everybody happy, that invites everybody to his house and they have the dance that winks with his legs. I remember that because he was like such a good dancer anyway, but he hosts that Christmas dance. And I was, I just found that so fascinating because I don't know anybody who dances at, like who has a dance at Christmas, but I think back when folk dancing was a thing, that was a thing. And I think that would be fun. That would be cool. People don't do dances though. Well, although that except at weddings, which weddings was the main example of non, you know, Christmas or Easter festivity that I could think of that give a, a wedding fulfills his requirements here for what what festivity is and we dance at weddings my my stepdad uh was a dj and he still does it every now and then still has all the equipment so there's there's never any telling when dancing might break out when we're at my mother's house (laughs) that's cool (laughs) because they have like the whole setup in the backyard and so you know the kids get out there and it's not folk dancing (laughs) But it's dancing. It, yeah. Yeah. So I would say that there probably have been some Christmases and Thanksgivings where, you know, a dance party's broken out. That's fun. I think that is a good example of festivity because I liked his definition on page 26 where he says festivity asserts that it is good to exist. Yeah. Well, and then as Abby brought up earlier, The longing for joy is nothing but the desire to have reason and pretext for joy. 
rejoicing is receiving what you love or the love. I didn't write down that one, but the lover receiving what he loves. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if some of the like extra length or extra, extra in Christmas that it just doesn't quite sit right. It is pointing to what we love and what we're trying to get out of it. And Peeper is saying here that the real heart of true festivity is gratitude for life itself. And if you don't have God, you don't, you can't, and you might not even, if you, if the love that you're trying to receive or give is just someone loving me or getting stuff, or maybe the desire for coziness or safety, that's not a deep enough reason for real festive. It's not a satisfying reason. Okay. You just, you made me wonder if dancing is a great example of an affirmation of life. Yeah. In the old fashioned sense, we just finished reading Emma by Jane Austen and there's the ball and everything. And it's interesting that it was not, there was this certain expectation that this was, this was for those young adults that, that really weren't married yet. For the most part, (laughs) this was for young, like they, it was an affirmation of the young people. Like people will say things like, you know, you, you young ladies really deserve this to happen. We haven't done this. And it's unfortunate. We haven't done this. You deserve this. And, and so then there's this scene where Harriet is overlooked by Mr. Elton and then Mr. Knightley's great deed is that he goes and asks her to dance. It was just like an affirmation of her that she has value and that she should be danced with. And anyway, I just, I was thinking about this, about how many elements of affirmation of life were in the ball scene in Jane Austen, Hmm. that there was just, it everything, you know, it was just that, um, that the idea that the young people would want to do this is affirmed. There's not something wrong with them. They didn't need to grow up and get over it. This is good for them. And then everybody should have a dance partner because that's good for them. I don't know. It just was really a fascinating thing to me. And it's interesting because my kids had this sort of longing to dance. Like I had one of them come to me and say, why don't we have balls anymore? You know, just like it sounded fun to them. I had never really thought of that before as an affirmation of life. Misty's uh, comment made me think of something that I had underlined in the book on page 29. He says, but a festival becomes true festivity only when man affirms the goodness of his existence by offering the response of joy. Hmm. And then earlier in that paragraph, he talks about this is the point at which to correct the misconception about some that which sometimes prevails that the festive is also the cheerful. Hmm. It is significant that according to Greek myth, all great festivals had their origins in the celebration of funeral rites. And that just made me think of like those New Orleans funerals. Oh, yeah. You know, where we're celebrating. Uh, you know, somebody has gone on, but this is like man affirming the goodness of existence by offering the response of joy. So that, that whole idea of the bands and the dancing down the street, following the casket and, and things like that. Um, for some reason that just struck me. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. We don't, do that in California, but (laughs) (laughs) we don't do it in Alabama either. (laughs) But I was, I actually, I remember that that struck me just about how many good memories I have that took place at funerals or at the reception after the Mm -hmm. funeral. And it was nothing particular going on. I mean, other than food and space, 
lots of food, lots of people and lots of space and time where you're not really expected to do anything other than connect with people. I have a lot of good funeral memories. Okay. So let's contrast a funeral to kind of our celebration of Christmas these days. Just bear with me here. It is spontaneous. You know, a lot of times funerals are kind of spontaneous events. Uh, you, you don't really know they're coming, but mm-hmm. all of a sudden something happens and you have to put these things together. Family gathers together and we do kind of have this view towards our existence and in the way that we're, you know, praying for and remembering and recognizing the person who's gone on. We're all yeah. kind of standing around thinking, I'm still here and I'm very thankful for that right now. Mm-hmm. Have I yeah, lost yeah. y'all? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> oh. no, no, I do. Great. I was thinking about, yeah, just that last minute, like you don't plan the funerals. You don't get six months notice or anything. <laughs> no, not like, usually. Okay. And guess what you're doing this weekend? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, there is that sense of you sacrificed your time, right? Mm-hmm. Like you have the, you probably had plans that day, but you mm-hmm. gave it up because this was more pressing. It was more important. Right. Which that actually reminds me of something I really early on, on page four, where he talked about how the idle rich and do nothings cannot celebrate a festival because you have to have a life that's normally shaped by work to be able to experience festivity. Like with the, um, with funerals that often it's taking place at a time where normally we would be at work. They're often on a Friday and they're in the afternoon or whatever, or even in the morning. And men are showing up in their suits and ties because they left the office to come to the funeral or whatever. I just was thinking like that work-shaped life and then the pause, that, that um, what do you call it? That pattern for festivity is interesting. And so, well, I don't know, even Pam, I wonder about the whole pushing Christmas back and then that frustration with the work. It's like we're mixing it all up instead of having the work and then the pause. My husband's family few years ago, both his grandparents passed away and his father, my husband's father is the only one who is a Christian in his whole family. And he's the oldest of nine and they refused to have a funeral for either of their parents. My father-in-law was very um, upset about this and they were very well known in their communities and very active. And I mean, um, his grandpa was the principal at the local high school in this small town for years and years. And they worked instead of stopping and reflecting and things like that. And, you know, my husband said it was because they, you know, have such a hard time facing things like that, right? Like mortality, they couldn't celebrate it. And it was such a sad thing to me that they could not, you know, honor their parents whom they loved, respected, thought the world of, and yet said, no, we're not going to have a funeral. And I thought that that was just such an very typical of their family, like work comes first. So how sad it is that your family couldn't pay their respects and celebrate and yeah. talk about the life. And I think that that is such yeah. a sad way to end a life. Oh yeah. We had a relative who's, who did not want a funeral and I thought it was really sad. Cause I thought also like the family didn't really get closure. Like there is a closure that comes with everyone meeting together and saying goodbye to, you know, to that era and the family where that person was present. And, um, 
there were, I thought there was so much missing from that. And it was supposed to be no big deal, which is the opposite of this affirmation of life that Peeper is talking about. The funeral is affirming that that person matters. Mm-hmm. Yes. They're worth dropping our work for and thinking about for a few hours. And other people in the community and my family, which our families have been connected for a long time, they said, why? Why wouldn't they? They were such, you know, important parts of their community. And it is, yeah, it's, it's just so odd. Yeah. Well, and I think that's what gets in the way of our celebrating of Christmas and Easter is our mixing up of what's being celebrated. A funeral is is rejoicing in that life and commemorating it and affirming that it is good that that person did exist that they have affected our existence and that we will be better people because of them, you know, moving forward. Yeah. And, you know, often for me, two funerals have been a focused point where this character trait or whatever, something about the person being remembered reminds me of what I need to be more mindful of myself in my life. Like, mm-hmm. what, what are people going to say about me at my funeral? Yeah. Yes. But then in Christmas and in Easter, It's not ourselves or our family or our community that we are affirming and celebrating. It's Christ. And, you know, more decorations, more cookies isn't going to make up if that's lacking. And that's where true gratitude, you know, in Christ, all things hold together. And so it's the time to pause, to put other things on hold and to affirm that reality and that truth that the creator who spoke the world into existence cares and came into the world for us. And I know I had a a cousin one Christmas who got up and made a speech about Christmas being a time for families to get together. And (laughs) uh, no, (laughs) (laughs) not actually (laughs) that happens. And that's not, the purpose. Right. But I do think that it's easy actually to get those things mixed up. We're putting together these family gatherings and we're doing these family activities so that the family feels connected and and to remember that, you know, the point is actually worship. Yeah. You know, I never thought of it this way, but that perspective helps us mm, tolerate each other. <laughs> Um, I mean, just because holidays are all Christmas, especially is kind of famous for, Oh, I got to see this person. And this person's like this at Christmas and blah, blah, you know, I mean, and there's usually at least one member in every family that manages to have an attitude or whatever, or you end up with like the whole mother-in-law, daughter-in-law clash of Christmas traditions. There's that that happens too. And if our perspective is that the purpose is worship, I think it helps us not cling so tightly to our way or be so bothered by the person who's being like this or what. I mean, it just, for me, that at least gives me perspective to maybe let it go or extend the needed grace or whatever. Well, and just think if the holiday is about Christ coming into the world and when he did, he was completely unappreciated (laughs) and you know, just how he still loves and cares for us, even though we are that nasty, ugly, awful person, you know, mm-hmm. how, how appropriate could it be to have occasion to still be kind to and loving toward 
someone who isn't lovable? What, like what better time than Christmas to have that opportunity? And at the same time, when you have family members who are, you know, boundary stompers and when they push their way into your life and you can just say, actually, this is Jesus's day. And so that's what we're going to do as a family. Um, It can also relieve you of sometimes issues that come up that what is the real purpose and reason for Christmas and therefore our family is going to worship. Um, we've had family members who mm-hmm. often will say, well, why can't you just come this day and at this time? And it has become like, well, because we're going to church and, right. and that is offensive to them. So it can be <laughs> a nice way to, um, you know, honor the Lord and stand firm in that. Because I think there are people who just aren't going to be able to understand that part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you can know that it's not about them and it's not about you. Yes. So it, yeah, it allows you to it's not yeah. draw those lines. Yeah. yeah. And I love you and we'll spend time with you at this time. And it doesn't make me love you less. It just has a different meaning. And, and this is what the mean, this is the true meaning. Yep. Okay. So we have our annual Christmas, Christmas hashtag that I invented a few years ago and we've been using it ever since. And it's don't be the white witch because we don't want our homes to be always winter and never Christmas. Um, so, but I was thinking in this context that we really don't want it used just to encourage more frenetic activity, though it is sometimes helpful for those of us who are not naturally the fun mom to encourage each other to pretend like we are for a season. <laughs> but before we end, if we could give one word of advice in regard to activities for this Christmas time, what would it be? Can I get some coaching from you guys? Coach me on not being the white witch. I, I wanted to read a, another quote. Oh, please yeah. do. Go for it. Um, on page 35, he says, secular as well as religious festivals have their roots in the rituals of worship. Otherwise, what arises is not a profane festival, but something quite artificial, which is either an embarrassment, <laughs> think of Walmart Christmas on the lawn, or <laughs> we shall have more to say on this, a new and more strenuous kind of work. Oh, yeah. Mm. So when we take, uh, when we remove those roots of worship, that's when we end up with it just feels like it's so much to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, honestly, I think that's why the Narnia imagery helped me because it was realizing that the reason why Christmas was happening in Narnia was because, because Aslan was on the move. Mm-hmm. The people were celebrating because of that. They weren't manufacturing that. Right. It was an overflow of happiness. Yeah. Not manufacturing the happiness. It was a result, not a cause. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we're not the ones who make Christmas happen. I got to go back to the Grinch. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Christmas is going to happen even if you take all that stuff away. Yeah. You know, we're not the ones who make it happen. It's going to happen anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm trying to think of like how to, to make this into a practical thing. It's like, okay, so now what? Because if yeah. I don't do anything, it's going to be pretty bleak around here come <laughs> December. Right. So I think we just have to open ourselves up to participating, to being a participant, not the orchestrator of, but the, a participant in. And so 
what is our role and how can we best participate? Hmm. Well, we give because as God's image bearers, that is what he does. He, he gives us good things. Our father in heaven gives us good things. And so therefore we are imitators. And so giving our children and our families and our, you know, neighborhoods and things like that, good things is not, is not a problem. It is a good thing. And it is out of God's goodness to us that we get to participate in his He is glorified when we participate with the things that he has planned, right? We have, we can give good gifts and that doesn't mean materialistic things necessarily, though it can include those. And God loves a cheerful giver. So being cheerful and making time to, to do those fun things. And that is good. Yeah. The quote that's going on my planner page for December uh, is Peeper quoted Chrysostom. Hmm. Yes. Where love rejoices, there is festivity. Mm. Yeah. Are you putting it in the Latin? (laughs) I I think I need it it. in the English. (laughs) (laughs) Because he quotes both in the book. It does. (laughs) (laughs) And and part of my, you know, conviction reading through this is that it's love for Christ and what he's done. Like it, it's love connected to this event, what this event is commemorating. It's not vague love or the desire to feel love. It's not love for my kids or my husband. Uh, it, it's love for God and it's love for Jesus and gratitude that we exist at all. Not to mention that, you know, he saves us and he did what it took to, sa- to save us. That's the love that feeds all the other loves and the feeling of festivity and rejoicing Hmm. starts there. Yeah. I was scrolling through the don't be the white witch hashtag. And one of the things that struck me about it was really how simple everything was. Mm. It was going to look at Christmas lights. It was making cookies or ornaments. It was, I mean, it, it, it really wasn't super expensive and elaborate and frustrating and all the, it really, it really was just enjoying, (laughs) enjoying being together as a family celebrating the Lord. So it was just a good reminder to flip through it and see that it wasn't about more or what I mean, it, it was just the overflow of this is a time that we put aside to be, to remember that we have reason to be happy. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we don't realize how meaningful small things can be for our kids. Yeah. Well, I think we have to wrap it up. So I guess what we end with is um, an invitation for everyone to have a Merry Christmas and probably a reminder that if you're a premier member, you have a Christmas present in sistership waiting for you if you haven't gotten it already. Exciting. Mm-hmm. Part of the overflow of our happiness was to give something to, <laughs> to you guys. <laughs> It was pretty special. So shall we say a Merry Christmas? Merry Christmas. Merry Merry Christmas. Christmas. That's it for today. And that's not just it for today. That's it for season 10. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of the sisterhood of the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss our spring season kickoff in February. Every episode has a Scully sheet, and this episode is no exception. Download your free Scully sheet from our show notes 
at scolasisters.com slash SS64. Want to help support the podcast? Becoming a paid sistership member is the best way to do this and comes with a variety of benefits. The basic plan is only $3 a month and gives you access to tons of extra recordings, including the eight minutes that I cut from the Robbie Jane episode. Go to scalaysisters.com slash sistership to sign up. We wish you a very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. We are designing a wonderful lineup for you next season, including Kevin Clark, Robbie Jane, and Karen Glass. Until then, we want to remind you once again that homeschooling is a marathon. You needn't run alone, so open up your eyes and look around you. Find your sisters. Well, it's always fun to start off a recording with you being grumpy, Pam. <laughs> it happens <laughs> often. <laughs> um, I'm going to have to stop because my children can't seem to remember five minutes into something. So, and I'm being summoned. We'll train them. <laughs> Just do not hit the mute button, whatever you okay. do. Yes, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> You're not allowed to touch it. <laughs> We have to listen to you yell at your children. <laughs> now in bonuses. <laughs> and- <laughs>